Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to season two of Tag Talks with myself, Matt Welton. I'm starting to run out of ideas for monologues for these podcasts, so I thought I'd start with a food philosophical question. If you have two lasagnas and stack them onto each other, do you still have two lasagnas or do you still have one lasagna? <laughs> On that note, I welcome you back to our little cafe where I interview distinguished leaders in the food industry. This week, it took a wee bit of research, but we have an incredible guest this week. I'm very excited for this episode as we invite Brent Logan. Brent serves as the global food lead scientist for the WWF and was the Director of Science for EAT, an organization that focuses on the global food system. EAT aims to provide all 10 billion people on the planet by 2050 with a healthy diet which is sustainably produced. Alongside this, he has set up schools around the world as well as founding a non-profit organization of integrated conservation after his work in Borneo, which centered on education and development activities that promoted awareness of conservation and sustainability. So with that, we welcome Brent onto the podcast. I hope I did that well. <laughs> that was perfect, Matthew. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Perfect. Thank you. How you been doing? Where, whereabouts are you based at the moment then? Uh, Stockholm, Sweden. Stockholm, Sweden. How are you finding that? Yeah, good. I've been here now full-time since 2016. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's a nice place to raise kids. You're from America originally, aren't you, Brent? Yeah, I was born in the U.S., uh, but I left the U.S. Yeah, yeah, born in a small town in rural Iowa, um, so right in the heartland. And um, I left that back in 1994 and haven't really been back since. Just kind of been on this global journey of... Uh, uh, exploration and um, just seeing what this this great things that this planet has to offer. No, it's amazing because I've seen uh, I've I've read like a few bits about you. So you've obviously spent quite a lot of time in Asia, I think, in like Borneo, and uh, I think you've been to uh, Pakistan and quite a lot of countries over there. Have you been to like Africa much or like South America or is that, have you been more focused in that part of the world? No, I lived in Bolivia for three years. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was uh, in the late nineties. I uh, spent quite a bit of time in uh, mainly East Africa, Zambia, Mozambique, um, uh, Kenya, Tanzania. So yeah, a bit. I kind of yeah. I'm I'm I lived in Kenya for five years as well. So I've been in the East Africa part as well, which is really really lovely place. The world. It's a spectacular place, is it? It's it's a uh, it's pretty hard to compare. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're very well traveled, very well traveled. I think uh, on this point, I think we're going to start getting into this uh, podcast. And I thought a good place to start with this would be where you almost started probably into your career, which is probably your university. And I noticed that you so you, you, you went to university and you, you got a doctorate in uh, philosophy, resource and environmental management. I just want to see, like, did you always uh, know that this would be that you'd follow this career path into where you are now or? Was it a young, dumb, just let's go into it sort of decision? Yeah, no, absolutely not. You know, I've I, I've had a very uh, diverse career, I'd say. I'm the type of person that tends to, tr you know, I like to try things. Um, however, when I was young, you know, even back in Iowa, I was I was a kid who was who was hunting and trapping and loving wildlife and always out in the woods. You know, I was the one that had the raccoon tails from my car. <laughs> Because I was always always hunting the duck feather caps or the duck feathers that I put in, you know into my uh, hat. So, you know that was me. I, I just loved being outside and loved animals. And my dream back then actually was to study wolves and grizzly bears. And I wanted to get a PhD in wolves and grizzly bears. Back then, it, there was thoughts and notions of wanting to get a PhD, 
but then I went overseas. Uh, the first place that I went overseas was um, I was in Syria, and I spent uh, uh, some time in Syria. And there's something about discovering the world, being from small town rural Iowa, and all of a sudden you realize that the world is such a big place, and there's a, these amazing things that there is out there. And um, uh, yeah, that's 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 what I did for many years. You know, so that's why I was was in education for a while. Wanted to go to medical school for for a bit. Um, uh, you know, I went to Borneo, um, and when I been when I went to Borneo, that's when I kind of came full circle. Because uh, after I was doing this stuff in education, it was it was, it was really rediscovering almost that roots. You know, those uh, bears and wolves and those roots about wanting to get that PhD in wildlife conservation. Um, and uh, I came back to it when I was in Borneo um, and working with, you know, very different species, you know, orangutans and clouded leopards and monkeys and and working with local, um, you know, working with local diet communities and how do we protect these species. Um, so I guess I was going to ask you what inspired you to get to this point, but obviously all this traveling sort of inspired you to get to this point. What did you end up doing a PhD in then when you finally decided to go for that? It, well, it was it was in Borneo when I was working there that I realized that I just did not have the knowledge that I needed to actually be able to do it well. You know, I had the passion um, and I wanted to be in the forest. I wanted to study the animals. I wanted to work with local communities in terms of how do you protect these animals. But, but, but it's extremely complex. And I felt like I was a bit out of my depth. At that point that I um, uh, sought some more you know, education. And I thought a PhD is, is the best way to do it, not only from the knowledge standpoint, but just the intellectual maturity of you know, what it takes to do it. How old were you when you did your, your PhD, by, by, by the way? 40. Oh, so quite late on, actually, when you did your PhD. So yeah, so I did, I did, I did all of that other stuff, you know, that I said, you know, until, you know, explored, and I did not want to get a PhD, you know, at the time. I mean, there was thoughts of it when I was, you know, early on, but then I thought, I don't, I don't really need a PhD. I can do all this other cool stuff. But then coming full circle, coming to Borneo, kind of rediscovering my roots, and uh, you know, and, and this love of animals is what kind of brought me back to it. Um, and it was one of the best decisions that I've made in terms of. Uh, life choices. Do you think it almost benefited you doing your PhD later on because you sort of had more of a set mind about what you wanted to do? And Without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, you know, I think when you're, I think it's important, at least it was important for me to be able to explore, to be able to nibble at a lot of different things and try different things, you know, and start schools and be in education and work with orangutans and work with all these kind of things and, you know, really try and figure out what my what my skill set was and what my gifts were and where I really wanted to put my energy, you know, and, um, and I could never have predicted that I would be working on food. If you would have asked me way back then that it would have led from this to that to ultimately food, you know, you could never have traced that for me. No. I think that's, I think it's really interesting actually just to point on that because it's just like oh, the grad scheme I'm part of were quite a lot of young people, you know what I mean? I know quite a few people on my course, like they're still confused about what they want to do, you know what I mean? But uh, it, it doesn't matter really, you know, you, you, you might, you'll just find something whether it's now or later on, I guess. It doesn't matter as long as you continue to explore and pursue things that are interesting to you, right? And I think ultimately life is going to show you where it wants to take you as long as you're open to that. Um, it's maybe a bit zenish, but I do believe that's true. Um, 
you know, if I would have, uh, you know, gone down the path when I was younger and studied wolves and bears and everything, I, I, I would have had a very different life. I probably would have never left the U.S. I probably would have never um, been doing the things that I, you know, have done that have really shaped me. So no, definitely. Um, I think on that point, I think I'm going to do a quick switcherini and go to the fun question now. One of the funner questions for the um, the, the silly ones. So, uh, what is your childhood favorite meal? Let's go with that. <laughs> Growing up in Iowa. <laughs> Probably lasagna, actually. Lasagna. <laughs> well, that, 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 that's really topical bit, uh, based on the start of the introduction if Fernier actually listens to that. But I have to... <laughs> that's right. That's right. Stack lasagnas. And it is actually one, I think. So. Yeah, it's too fake. I'm like 100 layer lasagnas. The thing I love about lasagna, though, is it's one of those weird ones that if I go to a restaurant, I'll always order it if it's like an Italian. But it's because I can't be bothered to cook it at home because it does take a lot of preparation. But Yeah, absolutely. No, definitely. I could agree with you on that. <laughs> Let's get back to the sort of like the career. So I think what I've actually noted next is, I think we were talking about this in our pre-podcast interview. And you said um, that you're a headmaster of a school in Borneo. And I sort of like read a bit about how you've set up schools sort of around the world. But what sort of brought you to Borneo in the first place? Yeah, so I was actually, it was a school in Taiwan. And it was an international yeah, yeah. So it was. Um, so I worked in international schools for many years. Taught physics and chemistry and biology. Um, then I got this chance to work with this other guy to build this secondary program. And the idea with the secondary program was to start a school from scratch and really kind of redefine education. You know, we felt like traditional education wasn't good for kids. That you know, you put people in walls and you sort them into what you're good and what you're not good at. You, know, you, you pile them with 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 work that they don't want to do. It's not inspiring. And then all of a sudden they get out of it and you don't set them up with the proper skills to be able to uh, critically think and really look at the world. So the idea with a school that we started um, with that school was to redefine education. You know, we, we had no textbooks. Uh, um, we didn't offer the traditional kind of grades. We didn't have the traditional classes. Um really trying to do something different but still i felt with that type of school i was still confined by the walls of the school the physical walls of 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 the school building so when we went to borneo the first iteration of um, of this org that we had was um to get kids out into nature and to get them experiencing things and get them out into the world on these eight week expeditions these eight week courses uh, so that was the first thing that we did is, is is we created this school without walls. But that led to the conservation organization. And I stopped doing that particular idea and I got more into the research side of things. And that led to integrated conservation and the work with the DIAC. So I, I, I tried to find a bit more on this integrated conservation. I couldn't find as much, but could you sort of just explain what the integrated conservation is for people? Yeah, so the organization is no longer around. Um, the integrated conservation, what we did is we were trying to and, and the name came, um, comes from the idea of you want to integrate multiple multiple disciplines. You know, the conservation, I, you know, I think in many areas, traditional conservation is we're going to go in and save these large charismatic species. We're going to save orangutans or tigers or whatever. To heck with the people, um, you know, to heck with what what they want, um, to heck with, you know, economics or other things. And uh, what, what we were doing with the integrated conservation was saying, well, you know, we have to have a much a, more of a holistic picture of it. So this was we were, we, were, we had education programs, uh, worked on you know economic development programs. Um, uh, we did the traditional work in the forest, but we did all of it. You know, research and education and working with governments, and we were trying to bring it all together into this integrated conservation um, uh, 
um, idea concept. What sort of what, what would you say like your biggest challenges around like this were at the time, if you can remember? I underestimated how hard it was going to be. You know, I think that going in very naive, um, you know, thinking, okay, we've got to save orangutans, forests are being cut down, uh, palm oil is terrible. Um, that's you know, what, what I thought at the, you know, at that time and that just going in there and, uh, I, I could save these forests, right. Save these charismatic species. Um, but then realizing just how complex it is to work with the local communities and juggle, um, economic developments and social development and, and, um, juggle conservation with, the local community's best interest. And uh, many times those don't always point in the same direction. It sounds like you've shown quite a lot of resilience actually then, because you came out with this bright idea that you really were so keen on implementing and obviously had a few challenges along the way. How did you sort of like keep yourself positive about it to keep it going? Is it, would you say it's part of your work ethic or do you think that's naturally who you are? I, I think it's probably naturally who I am. It's part of my work ethic. I mean, it's it's hard not to get disillusioned in this kind of line of work. You know, I you know I know a lot of people that work in conservation or that work in you know other humanitarian type issues. They get burned out after X number of years. You know, and and just just because I think you go into it with the idea that you want to make the world a better place, but you realize it's it's much harder than you think, right? And it can be much uglier than what you think. Um, and, and the only way that you can face that is just to, well, you take your licks, you learn from them, um, and uh, you pick yourself up every single day. And the only thing that you can do it, you know, I don't, I'm not a believer in hope or I'm not a believer in motivation because those kind of come and go every single day. But discipline um, never does. You know, if you're disciplined with your work, if you're disciplined with, with your thinking, you get up every single day and you do what has to be done. You know, you get knocked down, you, you do something stupid, you get up the next day and you make it better, you know? So, well, I definitely learned, um, uh, a lot when I was there. Um, and, and that ultimately led me to working where I am right now. It sounds like a very interesting sort of part of your life, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have loved to have stayed in the forest, loved to wake up with you know orangutans over your head and hearing the guns wake you up every single morning it's a magical experience but you know at some point you got to come out of the forest and you have to uh, encounter the real world and and make the changes out there you know yeah so. i think i think this is gonna lead on quite well actually to some of my next questions but i guess we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do um I don't know. Are you, are you a drinker, Brent? Do you have? Do you like? Do you like alcohol? Uh, yeah, sure. Like a nice whiskey every now and then. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, so we'll go. We'll go with that because uh, I'm always worried. One time I'll ask this and somebody won't drink alcohol. But uh, what would you? What's, what's your? What's, what's your? What's your drink of choice? <laughs> I'd say Macallan Twelve is probably a nice whiskey. Is that, yeah. is Scot is that Scottish or? Yep. Gosh, love it. So let's say you've had a bit too much then. I guess my second lead on question is what's your, what would be your hangover cure? What's the thing that would get you ready the next day? Oh, this is going to be really boring. <laughs> but I don't, I don't drink that much just because I hate the hangover the next day. Yeah, no, it's one of the worst things. I think I'm asking from quite a young perspective. <laughs> because of the I'm 50 and, and you know, when you're thinking about resilience, you don't you don't bounce back as quick as you used to. <laughs> 
So it's not just the food of choice or the drink of choice the next day. It's 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 the next week that you have to be able to to figure it out. So it's best just to avoid it. I, I had this conversation with someone the other day, and we we're saying how like English people tend to revolve all their meals around hangover cures. So like a full English breakfast is like the pure hangover cure. So yeah, yeah, you know, I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a health freak. Uh, no, freak. That, that's that's probably not the right right way, you know, of framing it. Um, you know, I definitely believe you. You know, you should if you want to have a drink, you know, have a drink. But uh, but but pushing myself too much to where I do have to wake up the next day and deal with it is I, I can feel it in my body. This almost actually probably leads me on quite well, actually, because. I think the next thing I've got is the eat initiative, which is probably quite a big part of your career path at the moment. And uh, I was watching like the video of you with the eat and you mentioned about um, sort of like you try and encourage, you're trying to encourage the world to have almost this balanced, sustainable meal. Like there is a perfect sort of sustainable meal that you can have. And it's about healthy eating and trying to get access for that for everybody around the world really, isn't it? That's sort of like the premise of eat, isn't it? Yeah, so I joined EAT in 2016, uh, right after I finished my PhD. Um, you know, once again, and the reason that I joined EAT because I realized that everything connects back to food. All of the issues come back to food um, and that I could have these same conservation outcomes and do the same kind of outcomes that I wanted to by actually working on food issues. And I also felt, you know, one of the things that I realized working um, well, I was actually working in Borneo was that, um, you know, where I thought I could create the most change and where the, where change can happen the quickest is if you work at the high levels, if you work at these international regulatory levels where you're influencing UN processes, you're influencing national level, you know, national level processes that that can actually then trickle down and impact the individual communities. You know, so I started out when I was working in Borneo working saying, well, it's, it's more about the individual community, the bottom up processes. I feel like um, given the the urgent crises that we're facing, the multiple convergent crises that we need more of the top down work. And that's where EAT was working in, you know, EAT was working in how do we actually transform and, 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 and influence these international processes and bring the issue of food to the table, to the international table, to, to be part of the international discourse. And I think EAT has done a really remarkable job in, uh, in raising the issue so i guess i guess to lead on from this who who is eat like who who who's sort of involved in this process so eat was started by gunhild stordalen uh it's an also based organization gunhild is a she's got a phd md um and she started it because she realized the critical importance that food had and not that many people were actually focusing on food at that time uh, so EAT was founded uh, shortly before I actually joined it. So I was kind of there from the very start. And uh, one of the signature events that EAT has had is this uh, EAT forum that it has every single year where it brings policymakers and business leaders and individuals from all over the world into Stockholm to have this uh, global forum on food. You know, and, and at that time, there wasn't really global forums only focused on food. You know, so it elevated that profile, you know, but we also did a ton of research. So the Eat Lancet report, what you talked about, was one of the signature reports that we worked on. And I was part of the team that led that, um, uh, you know, so it uh, works a lot with business, you know, so it works with many stakeholders in terms of raising this issue. I don't know if um, I don't know if this connects to it, but like, how did you sort of go from like conservation to sort of food then? Yeah, because my time in Borneo, I realized, number one, that the community level bottom up processes was probably not going to happen quick enough. That's where we had to focus. You know, it's like you 
um, influence a billion individual communities or do you influence a couple nations or top-down processes that can then trickle downwards? So I wanted to jump into that international work. And by working in Borneo, one of the things that I realized is that people didn't want to talk about orangutans. They didn't want to talk about clouded leopards. They didn't want to talk about saving their forests. They wanted to talk about health and jobs and uh, uh, food. You know, food is central. You know, how do they get food for their kids? And everything connects back to food. Palm oil was the thing that was destroying the forest. It's, it's food. So I, so I realized that food is a nice entry point that everybody wants to talk about. It doesn't matter if you're a policymaker. It doesn't matter if you're a health person, you know, environmental person. Talking about food is something that kind of brings us all together, right? So that's why I jumped into food. You know, I realized I could do the same work that I wanted to do by focusing on the issue instead of focusing on some other issue directly. Are you still involved with Eat quite a lot now then? Uh, no, not, not as much. Um, uh, I, I still do some work with them. So Eat is leading the action track two for the UN Food System Summit. So the UN is putting on the first UN Food System Summit ever this year. There's five different action tracks and Eat is leading action track two. We're leading action track number three. Um, so, so the action track two is about healthy and sustainable diets and action track three is about sustainable food and how we you know, produce this food for every single person on the planet. So I do some work with them on that. So I think I've got a woman coming on soon, actually, in a future episode who works with the UN Food System Summit. Uh, Christine Gold, she works with Thoughts for Food, I think. It's called Thoughts for Food, but I think she's coming on later at some point, actually, as well in the series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's working for uh, Action Track 4. Oh, small world. <laughs> With all this podcast, yeah. No, she's uh, she used to work at Syngenta, so uh, hopefully, yeah, I know, she's agreed to meet me as well to do this podcast. That's really interesting. I guess you've done this sort of eat pro eat program, and I guess, like, I think this is quite an important question for, for us, but, like, what do you reckon, like, we as individuals can do to contribute towards this sustainable eating? Yeah, so this might seem a bit contradictory to what... I said before about bottom-up processes, but when I'm talking about bottom-up processes, you know, I still believe that the role of individuals still is is very, very important. You know, we can't say it has to be top-down, right? And one of the things that I struggled with when I worked in Indonesia, you know, I'd give talks about orangutans and these charismatic species and how to save them. And I'd be in uh, Europe or Canada or someplace. People would say, what can I do to save these species? And I struggled with that answer. Because at the end of the day, it's really hard for somebody sitting in a place like Canada to save, you know, orangutans without flying over there and volunteering their, you know, time. Um, But the thing with um, food is by changing your diet, you can have an immediate impact. I would say that food is, you know, one of those things that gives us agency. And we all want to have control over our lives. We all want to have control over our future. And we all want to feel like we're making a difference in the world. And I think sometimes we struggle with, what can I actually do? I'm just one person. But man, your diet has plays a huge role in that. Change your diet right now today. After you listen to this, go home and change it. You know, eat 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 a bit more of a plant-based diet. And I'm not saying that you have to totally give up meat, but eat, eat more of a plant-based diet. It, it's good for the planet and and you'll feel great. That, that's already something, to be honest, that I've been doing because I'm not like living in Switzerland. It's actually very expensive to eat meat anyway, which is sort of one of my drivers. But like I probably eat, I only meet once every two days, maybe now, like I don't eat it as much, but you do feel a lot healthier for it. And it is a lot better. Yeah. You know, there's that, um, uh, uh, meatless Mondays push. Um, and I think we should 
turn that on its head and call it meat Mondays. You know, so we think about having meat maybe once or twice a week, you know, um, and also, you know, diversifying it, you know, having some, having, you know, a little bit of red meat, a little bit of fish, you know, some white meat, um, and not only eating one, one type of meat, like, you know, red meat, but, but we're, we're, we're programmed in many places are programmed to have meat at every single meal. And if you don't have that meat, then it's not a meal. Right. And, you know, we've got to work against that. So, um, I guess my last question to do the sort of is how did they sort of implement their strategy things? So you say it's top to bottom, but like, would they work with like governments to try and like implement like these strategies or yeah well eat eat is both top to bottom and bottom to top you know so it's so it actually runs both and it realizes that both working with individuals local communities changing diets at the individual level is very important Uh, but it also works so you know so eat is working at the un level leading action track two um, uh, works with national level governments, so it really works at both. And 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 it's when you bring those two together, I think that's uh, when important and magical things can happen. And that's that's what it does. And I definitely recommend anybody listening to have a look at this because it's a really cool initiative. And I've I've read quite a bit of it, just like in my own free time. Very interesting to look at. And I guess while we're on food, before we go into sort of like the last few parts of this podcast, I just wanted to. I think the fun question I've got is: um, Is there any food that you absolutely refuse to eat? Like, or possibly what's the most bizarre piece of food you've ever eaten? <laughs> uh, the most bizarre. Hmm. Hmm. No, I don't think there's any food that I would. Ref- oh, geez. No, I don't think there is any food that it would actually refuse to eat. Did you have anything weird when you were traveling around like Borneo or anything like that? <laughs> um, I mean, insects ate quite a, quite a bit of insects. Um, uh, I would say that's probably the weirdest that I have eaten. But no, I'm I'm pretty open to what you should eat. Um, yeah. So yeah, not a very satisfactory answer. But no, no, no. I find because I find insects quite weird on actually because I have a mate who's trying to work go into sort of insect farming because it seems to be something that's trying to be grown quite a bit because you can actually do these insect farms and grind them down into flour and it's a lot more sustainable than like actually some of the growing of the wheat fields and stuff for flour. So I don't know if you've heard much on that. Yeah. Insects aren't that bad, actually. I mean, uh, my girls have had them. I've got a couple of girls are age six and they think eating, you know, grasshoppers isn't actually too bad. I think the legs are a bit crunchy. Um, but yeah, the insect farming and uh, looking and turning towards insects as a sustainable food choice is definitely gaining some steam. I don't, I'm not sure how much the market will actually be able to corner. Uh, it might always remain a bit fringe but we need all efforts out there to do this so so from insects eating insects farming i guess we're going to go into my last thing and we're coming up to sort of what your current role is so you're the global food lead scientist for the wwf and it's where you are at the moment you're based in uh, sweden at the moment so sort of like how did this opportunity arise and so what what does this part of your job involve uh yeah so <clears throat> the reason that i'm working for wwf is i was keen to work on with a bit larger organization, one that were that had reaches in so many, you know, so many countries. I think everybody's heard of WWF. It's a very respected organization. You know, we're in eighty-seven countries globally, I believe. Um, this year, we were ranked as I think the most trusted conservation organization in the world. Um, so. You know, I thought that it, to carry this initiative forward and to think about food 
more broadly that WWF would be able to do that. Um, and I got this opportunity to uh, work as a global food lead scientist. So what it is, is um, being the um, global scientist for the entire you know, organization about food. So helping to set the agenda and some of the scientific uh, work that we should be working on. I guess it combines sort of, I guess WWF as well, obviously very famous conservation sort of um uh, would you say charity, non-profit organization or uh, non-profit. non-profit? Yeah. But uh, it's always great for you because you're combining a new love of food with your uh, love of conservation. Coming full circle. Absolutely. It's come full circle. But um, how would you say that this opportunity is like differed from like your past jobs then your past endeavors? Like, you know, in some ways it feels like it is coming full circle and all these choices that I've made have kind of led to this, you know, it, it global position. It's a, it's a big responsibility in terms of the agenda that we're setting and the work that we want to do and being at the front and center of it. So, so, so being part of it and being able to, to really help elevate food within this global conservation organization is a massive responsibility. Um, uh, it's important work, but, uh, uh, I would not have been ready to do this without, you know, doing all the other things that I did, whether it was, uh, the school in Taiwan or the work in Borneo and making those mistakes and taking those chances, you know, it, it all leads to, to where I am right now. So, um, you know, I think that's important in life as it, as you're choosing what you want to do, you know, make a lot of mistakes, make a lot of choices, pick yourself up and, and ultimately, uh, you'll get to where you want to go. I, that, I think that's really good for actually the people listening. Cause they're all like, we're, we're all young graduates about to start. We're starting to go into the world and our world in the food industry. So you've talked about your, you said sort of mistakes, but what would you say sort of your biggest success factors are? Cause I've talked about your challenges, but what would you say your biggest success factors are and getting up to your point you are now? Oh, success factors. Oh. It's a bit of a difficult question. It's a classic sort of interview question, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can definitely think of a few things that uh, I could mention, which are a bit random, maybe I would say the school, but they all come back to this idea of like taking these chances, jumping off these cliffs, you know, and every single time that I've come to this intersection of should I do it or not, I've had so many people tell me, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. No, 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 no. That's, it's, you know, too risky. And then I often end up doing that and it ends up being the best choice I ever made, you know? Don't go to Borneo and start this conservation organization. That's weird. Don't start the school in Taiwan. You're crazy. You know, don't don't get a PhD at this you know age in your life. And you know, it's, you know, so. But it's all led to great things. I mean, you know, some of the most probably the things that I'm proudest of, uh, or, or not proudest of, but best things. I mean, I found a helped to rediscover a monkey that they thought was a that they thought was extinct in Borneo. So that was a uh, quite fun. That received a lot of press. Um, was one of the lead authors and helped to contribute to the notion and the idea that uh, that that um, that actually when we're looking at orangutans that they walk on the ground more than we thought. There's this traditional idea that uh, they spend their time up in trees and and I published one of the first papers that said, well, hey, actually they spend some time on the ground. Um, I'd say the Eat Lancet report that I was one of the lead authors on is is, is probably one of the most important pieces of work that I've been involved in. I, mean, I would say of, of food-related work, that's uh, probably one of the most important publications that has ever come out. Um, so I would say it, off the top of my head, those might be three of the um, – 
things that I'm most, or some of my successes, probably the thing I'm most proud of is probably my kids. I had, I had kids later in life. We've had a really nice family theme throughout this podcast actually so far because Christine Tacon, who was on the podcast before, she said that's one of her drivers actually, her children actually. As well. It grounds me, man. It really does. I tend to be, a, I tend to work a lot. I tend to be very driven. I'm ambitious, you know, and, and uh, you know, kids tend to keep your feet on the ground, which is nice. Uh, that's, that's lovely that's, uh, I think that's quite a nice way to sort of, I think how we can sort of come to the end of your sort of LinkedIn sort of career as I, as I say because that's where we've sort of gone through so I'm actually actually there's one thing I actually wanted to talk about I'm, I saw you have a Wikipedia thing and it says that you're involved with the Paris Agreement I mean all of the work that we're doing is um, focused on how do we help to achieve the you know biodiversity you know targets that we have or whether it's like climate targets that we have, health you know targets that we have. So the Paris Agreement work that we do. I mean, there's several things that we do, and you know, one of them is um, every single country has to form um, their national level contribution. So how like how much greenhouse gas can country X actually you know emit in each year, and they submit that to Paris or to this to this body every single year to say that this is how much we're going to commit to actually reducing over time. Um, and one of the things with food is food is not incorporated in, into any of these targets. So any of these global targets to actually achieve Paris, food is not actually part of it, really. You know, they'll deal with transport and they'll deal with, uh, um, you know, electricity targets, but not food targets. And one of the direct things that we're doing is uh, integrating food into these targets and saying that food has to be considered because it's one of the largest, um, the largest global you know emitters of these cells. So, so we've got to. We've got to work on that. It's a lot of a lot of major accomplishments, actually. You're, I'm so glad to have had you on the podcast, to be honest. So I think I'm going to do one last fun question, then I've got a couple of just like end of ones. And I think the last one is a bit of a stupid one. We're a food and produce industry. So what do you reckon the vegetable of the year is for you? <laughs> Broccoli. Broccoli. So we, I think we had aubergine last week. Broccoli. Any any particular reason or is this just favorite one? You can with it. Kids love it. It's one of the ones that you always have as a growing up as a kid, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that you can do so many things with it, and 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 it's so it's so dang healthy. I mean, you really can't go wrong. So, and it's, and it's easy to cook. So, I think I might have to take a toll of all the different uh, vegetables I get throughout this season and see see which one wins because uh, at the moment it's one one. You know, there's this notion out there that people don't like broccoli. I think, but I, I don't know. It's it's kids kids love it. I love it. It's. It's a great veggie. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a big fan of aubergines and courgettes. To be honest, at university is always the cheapest vegetable, cheapest vegetables to have. So I just pile them. You can have them in anything, curry, you know, like every cuisine. So I guess thank you for talking to me through your career and everything. So I guess these are just sort of three ones that are hopefully topical about it. But is there anybody in particular in your life who sort of inspired you to get to the position you're in right now? I know you've said your family, actually, which is probably, I'd imagine, something like that. But is there anybody else in your life? Oh, boy. Uh, you, you know, I would say that there's been many people along the way that have that have guided me. And I would say that the people that have inspired me the most sometimes are some of my largest critics. You know, they're the ones that, uh, that don't just tell me I'm doing a good job, but have pointed me in maybe a different direction and really allowed me to say, okay, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? So, so I would say that, uh, you know, definitely, um, individuals that have been able to do that with me. And I also tend to watch people who are successful and I tend to look at what they do. Right. 
Um, what kind of characteristics to, you know, do they have? And I've met a lot of people that I just am completely awestruck by because they're so smart, they're humble, they're successful. Um, they've gotten to where they've gotten and, and, and really trying to study in terms of what is it that, what characteristics do they have? Right. So, um, and I'm blessed in this position that I have to have, to be able to work with many people like that. And you've met some amazing people who've really driven you to where you are as well. Amazing people. Every, you know, people from the local diet community that I lived in that were amazing human beings up to the individuals that I've worked with uh, through these international policy processes. So I've, I've, I've worked with a lot of really great people. I think so coming to the end now, so we've got two more, I've got two more questions. I think uh, this is, I think it's an interesting one, but what would you say your future ambitions from now on then? My main ambition right now is to really help WWF become one of the global leaders in this food area. You know, food is a relatively new uh, area for this organization to work on. And I think when people think of WWF, they think of tigers and pandas and animals, right? They don't think of a species. Yeah. Um, and that's extremely important work. And, you know, so being able to work at this global organization and help to uh, elevate food to the international level, you know, that's 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 my biggest career you know, ambition. And I would say, you know, beyond that is ensuring helping to ensure that we have a planet that is, you know, habitable, one that allows us to actually thrive in the future. I, I, I think it would be terrible to lose orangutans in the wild tigers in the wild and that my kids and you know grandkids won't have a planet where these animals are still wild you know i'm sure you've seen this uh have you seen the life on our planet with david attenborough actually when he talks about like 60 years ago when it used to be complete wilderness almost and now we're reduced to what like i don't know what the stats are now but the amount of wilderness we have is completely been diminished really so completely yeah i mean it's it's uh at a at one of the fastest rates that we've ever seen you know, it's, it's, it's for one species, you know, and I think it's fair that, uh, uh, you know, we should have part of the planet, but we shouldn't have all of it. So, yeah, no, definitely. I think like, I guess my last question now, so thank you firstly, just for coming. This has been, I really enjoyed this so far, but, um, it's a bit of a difficult one, but if you could have done one thing differently in your career, would it be, or maybe not, you may have just <laughs> been very happy with where you've gone. Nothing. <laughs> I would say, you know, you know, sometimes I look back and I, you know, think, oh, you know, I wish I would have gotten to gotten into this a bit sooner. I wish I would have started my career in my 20s and and, and, and not in my 40s or, or, or jumped right into this back then. But I, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. You know, and I think that often we want to shortcut the process and we're all on our own journey and it takes different times. And maybe you can, fi- you can figure it out when you're in your 20s. Maybe you have to figure it out when you're in your 50s. So, but what I would say that it's been the most important thing in my career are the chances that I've taken. The time that I've jumped off to the, gone to right to the edge of the cliff and been scared as heck to jump off, but jumped and had no idea where I was going to land. And it's usually at those points that I've made these critical paths in my career where I have no idea where they're going to turn, you know? So, um, so I would say that, yeah, really, really, I would not do anything in it. And, and if there is anybody listening to this, that, that if there is any you know, advice that I would give is, um, don't be afraid to take those chances. Don't be so eager to find, you know, to figure out your way 
so soon that you, you you don't allow yourself to make mistakes i think that's a i think that's a really good actually uh, that's a really good ending statement for this you've done it better than i probably could have but um <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on the podcast i'll probably i'll try and share the link with you as soon as we get it uploaded and edited but um thank you so much for your time yeah it's been my pleasure matthew and uh i look forward to seeing where you go with this and the work that you guys do in the future Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I'll hopefully maybe catch up with you at some point in the future. Who knows? But best of luck with your future ambitions with the WWF. Mm -hmm.